Listener Production. We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast was recorded and pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. The heart. Next to the brain, it's the most important organ in your body. It's the muscle at the centre of your circulation system, oxygenating billions of cells and pumping blood a total distance of 19,000 kilometres in one day with every single beat. The steady flow of blood reaches all the way up to your head and all the way down to your toes, setting the foundation for all of your other organs to function properly. And it never gets tired, but it can get damaged. But when the flow is interrupted, when an artery is blocked, or maybe the heart's electrical signals are not working correctly, you might experience a cardiac event. And in some cases, the worst might be realised. If you fell over and needed stitches in your knee, chances are you would probably ease back into everyday life, you know, taking time to recover and rest, But the same can't be said about those who have suffered a cardiac event. Because unlike stitches, when the heart is hurt, we can't see it. There's no multicoloured bandages or visible sores to remind us, hey, I'm injured. When you get stitches, you're not really required to do anything. I mean, technically you could go sit on the beach and relax. But that's not the case with cardiac rehabilitation. Traditional programs take hours of face-to-face consultation with a cardiac rehab nurse. So if you don't have a car, if mental health impacts your ability to attend appointments, or you have an unpredictable work, family, or social life, face-to-face rehabilitation may be out of the question. But what if I put the program in your pocket? No, really, in your pocket. Specifically, in an app on your phone. And that's exactly what Cardihab is doing. They're using scientifically validated research to develop flexible, intuitive and effective digital health solutions to help manage and prevent the most prolific health issue worldwide. Hi, I'm Zoe Callister-Hakewell from Doctors on Call and welcome to Beyond the Medicine Cabinet. In the aftermath of an event, there's definitely a mental uh, health impact. I think in my case, it manifests itself as artificial optimism. um, This isn't happening to me, I'm just going to crack on. It's like playing Russian roulette and you win twice. The chances of you winning a third time are slim to none. Paul is a 50-year-old engineer and father of two teenagers living in Launceston, Tasmania, with his beautiful wife, Sarah. Paul has cardiovascular disease and he suffered two major cardiac events. Which, well, let's just say you wouldn't believe that looking at him on first glance. So take me back to your first cardiac event, because from what I can understand, you're very active, surfing, playing tennis. Also, you look incredibly healthy. Definitely, if I was to look at you, not the typical candidate that I would have in my mind of someone who would have a serious heart condition. Yeah, very active is a stretch, I have to say, but I certainly did try and, and do a lot of stuff. One kind of situation in, in particular that stands out is just before I was diagnosed with, with severely blocked arteries. I used to surf um, an awful lot. Mm. And I remember 
one morning fairly early out in, in the water off the coast, northern Tassie coast, um, and being the only one in the water at the time, thinking, this is great, this is fantastic. I'm mm. just going to wait for these waves to come through. But then feeling a pain in my chest and thinking, oh, you know, that's indigestion. You know, I've, mm. I must have come out too soon after breakfast. And then thought, well, I actually haven't had breakfast, but then just stayed in the water, caught a few more waves and got home. But in hindsight, looking back, that was probably an angina event mm. that I was blissfully unaware of or slightly aware but stubborn enough to just stay out and keep on doing those activities because in my mind, having um, chronic heart disease was the furthest thing from my mm. thoughts. I just didn't think that mm. that kind of stuff happens. Well, you're young as well to be 48 and experiencing that yeah. those symptoms. It's not something that you're probably keeping an eye out for. And I think also um, as a man as well, yeah. this, I think, mentality of, you know, keep going type yeah. of thing as well. Yeah, I think yeah, you, you've hit the nail on the head. Being that age and having children who are active as well, mm. and it was only really probably a month after that that I was sitting around a meeting table at work and started to get that kind of thumping sensation in my chest. But even then I didn't say... I'm actually not feeling well. I pretended I've got a mobile phone call and stepped out into mm. the corridor and, and waited for the feeling to pass. I, I, it, it's, it seems silly in hindsight, but it was very lucky. You know, it was a 90 plus percent block that they were able to unblock. And then even after that, so it was um, a return to kind of business as usual. I, I went through a rehab process, but actually felt I'm fixed and this is not happening to me again. I'm, I'm great. I'm good to go. Mm. And really didn't change my behaviours between 2019 and 2022 um, mm. until the, the second event. People who've had a heart attack or heart procedure should be in cardiac rehab. And yet 80% of people don't participate in programs. That was Helen Soros, CEO of Cardihab. In a nutshell, Cardihab is an app. But this is no Candy Crush or Wordle they've been able to distill the cardiac rehabilitation process into a patient-focused app that you can access just about anywhere. The technology was developed by scientists at the Australian eHealth Research Centre, a joint venture between the CSIRO and the Queensland Government. The successful commercialisation of the technology allowed Cardihab to grow as a business, with Helen stepping in as CEO three years ago. What was clear to me was there is a massive opportunity to help people recover from a heart attack, which is a pretty traumatic event. It's quite profound and a lot of people, when they've come to that point in their life, sort of think, well, where to from here? And they want to make some differences into the way they're living or the way they've lived so that they don't have another event like that. It's really scary. Through technology, when I saw the opportunity we could have and I saw the, the clinical trial data that had been done by the CSIRO when they first developed the concept, I thought this is just desperately needed. It's so funny that people don't prioritise cardiac rehabilitation, particularly when you break your arm or you break your leg. You go to a physio and you work with a physio to um, strengthen that arm or that leg to get back on your feet again. And then it's almost like because you can't see the heart, people don't prioritise that as a process to to go through. I it's so true. Yeah. And you would just honestly think that that would be the most obvious thing. Your heart's pretty important. Although people have the best of intentions to look after themselves, they think they know what to do, 
what's often misled is that they need support. They actually need a nurse or a doctor or an allied health service person to talk to them about their condition, help them understand their medication, help them understand what needs to be done when, uh, and to really coach them through that period of uncertainty, what happens after they've had a heart attack. And I think in the olden days when cardiac rehab was first identified as a model that could make a difference, people were staying in hospital for weeks after cardiac procedure. So it kind of made sense that you'd do the program in hospital mm. with um, clinical support, but the world's moved on. You, yeah. you get a stent now, you're in and out in a day. Wonderful developments in technology, in surgical yeah. procedures, in medications, all these cool things have happened, but the recovery path is still stuck in the 50s. So cardiac rehab is a secondary prevention program run throughout Australia in all states and territories, and we provide education clinical experience and education around healthy eating, physical activity, uh, medications, stress. And so how do you define a cardiac event? What are the different classifications? So we've got an ST elevated myocardial infarction where there's a total blockage of a coronary artery. We've also got different types of angina, which is a precursor to a heart attack. And this is the chest discomfort that may radiate into somebody's arm, neck, back. A lot of people may describe angina as gastric refluxy type of discomfort. And these are, can be variants of that as well. So I, I guess I'm, I wanted to know how common are they having a cardiac event? A uh, cardiovascular event will happen every 12 minutes throughout Australia. Wow. It's the number one killer of Australians. You'll have six events in the next hour. Two of those people will not survive over the next hour. So it's huge. John has helped thousands of patients recover after a cardiac event using the traditional face-to-face delivery method. And Paul was one of them. He completed the face-to-face rehab after his first event. The valuable thing about the the rehab is the education and awareness raising. So after every week attending the rehabilitation session, John or a visiting speaker came in and talked about a range of topics in relation to to heart disease. So it might be um, risk factors and symptoms through to uh, the technologies that are used to unblock arteries and what's involved and dietary factors, statistics around heart disease around Australia, and so on. So it went through for for six weeks. So some people who have had a heart attack, they'll be going back to work within two to three weeks post their event, but can't get to a traditional program. Rates of patients uh, or people uh, attending um, is very low throughout Australia, which sits around 30%. I guess a lot of people choose not to go or don't get into it because there's massive wait lists. They're usually programs of care that are conducted in the middle of the day and it's two to three days a week for six to eight weeks. And, and most people's lives are so busy, they don't have time to accommodate that in their workflow or they live in regional rural cities. It takes too long to travel to get to a rehab centre. So there's lots of reasons why people don't participate, but they really, really should. After I'd had my stents installed, I always felt... I, I can do this. I can, I can, you know, I'm going to get through this. And I'm going to be back out playing tennis and so on. In 2022, I had an unstable angina attack 
which was, it came on out of the blue. I think I'd had a day out walking, um, came back and had dinner. After dinner, started to feel sore and uh, a kind of crushing sensation in my chest. The pain didn't go away. Um, I started to feel nauseous with it and the sign of when the pain radiates towards a person's back or kind of under their arm or in this case up to the left hand side of the jaw but even then it probably took an hour before I actually said to Sarah look I, I don't think things are uh, going well I don't think things are things are normal so so it was Sarah who intervened and and called the paramedics so I saw Paul on the Northern Coronary Care Unit. It was his second event and going, oh, no, this has happened again. I tried my best the first time around and trying to give him um, the reassurance, we can get you through this. We just need to be a bit more proactive in modifying his risk factors around coronary heart disease. After my procedure, John was one of the first people I saw in the hospital. And John said, there's a wait list of 200 days to get onto the cardiac rehab program. And I just, yeah, I was, I was absolutely blown away by that because, you know, he's, I think he's one cardiac rehabilitation nurse for the entire north of, of Tasmania. Yeah. So he spread incredibly thin. <laughs> stretched yeah, to the limit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. To say he's stretched is, is an understatement. So he then introduced me to the CardiHab, the cardiac rehabilitation mm. app that I've been using. And I, and I didn't, I didn't have that in 2019, but I've got access to it now and it's fantastic. Could you walk me through what a patient would go through using CardiHab after going through an intervention for a cardiac event? So initially someone will have a review by a health service provider or a healthcare professional, might be a GP, might be a cardiologist or a nurse. And they'd look at that patient and understand what their baseline risk factors are. So do they smoke? Do they drink? Are they overweight? What medications have they been prescribed after their cardiac event or procedure? And then based on that person's risk profile, an automatic care plan is designed for them to address their personal needs. And the patient progresses along to complete their care plan. They've got daily activities they need to do, monitoring their symptoms, monitoring their stress. So if someone's got five medications, all of those medications for different things can be tracked and monitored. Yeah. And I guess that's the benefit back to the patient is we're treating the yeah. patient, um, but we've emphasised the expertise around cardiac. There's the ability to track your activity in a day, your alcohol consumption, your levels of stress, but it's all very easy. You know, I'm miming doing it now, but but it is literally like, you know, jumping on Spotify and finding songs. It, it's, it's very intuitive. So today I've flagged that I've completed my 15 minutes of exercise in the morning. I'll get through to the middle of the day and I'll take a read on what my stress levels were. Mm. which are very low, by the way. This is a, really <laughs> stress, a stress-free experience. And, but, but I'm able to record that, like, like capture it. So every week, as part of the rehabilitation program, I have a very quick catch-up with John, and he can go in and look at my, mm. my, my data and say immediately, look, you've, you've been taking your medications, great. I may have fallen down and not done the exercise um, as much as I need to. He'll, he'll ask about that. 
but it's all there for us to look at together. From a clinical point of view, it's really good. So for Paul, he had an increase in his uh, stress levels and I was able to see that higher stress level. So I could then discuss it with, with Paul and create a plan for him to bring those levels uh, into manageable level for him. It sounds like because he's got that ability to record consistently what's happening with him, you know, if he's taking his medications, how he's exercising, what he's eating, it sounds like when he comes to the telehealth with you, you can then make a better informed clinical plan because of that. Yeah, yeah. So for instance, if somebody's patient's blood pressure is consistently high, then we can come up with a a plan to manage that. So therefore, his outcomes uh, around his coronary heart disease are much better. I think the thing that we often forget is that if you have a heart attack, you've had a near-death experience. Yeah. So people get quite quite impacted by that moment in life. Yeah. And some people, you know, look at that as as something to assert positive change and others take it negatively. It's called the cardiac blues. Oh, really? And it's often a point of realisation that you're mortal. Cardiac blues is not just about the patient though. Yeah. And if you've nearly lost your partner. Yes. The partner is also pretty affected. The family is pretty affected. You would not expect it to be an older person's disease necessarily. And Paul, of course, being 50. Yeah. He might even have young children. Yeah. um, That would be traumatised by it. So the, the whole health impact, the psychological well-being and impact is not just about the patient. It's about the people around them as well. I think the the second time, um, the second time was particularly upsetting. I think, especially for children, because you know my daughter and my son have seen this happen in 2019 and kind of understood it. Saw it again in 2020, but but they were old and older, sufficiently old to, to mm. understand a little bit more. So it's you know seeing their dad being led away, you know, hooked up for ECGs and what have you, and it's upsetting and, and, and seeing that, um, you know, it was really, it was heartbreaking to see my daughter in that, in that um, particular situation. But the damaging thing is for an individual not to recognize it themselves. Mm. You know, you, you kind of, you have these, these events, they get addressed, but by continuing on that same track and thinking, I'm too young for this, you know, I'm, you know I can go on doing what I was doing almost just trivialises the concern of, of wives and children. And I think I, it took two events for me to, to realise that and take it a little more seriously. What makes this app so unique is that its care plans are tailored to the patient. Considering each individual's risk factors and lifestyle means that patients like Paul are more likely to actually stick to the program. In fact, there's close to a 30% increase in adherence to rehabilitation using the app compared to -to face-to-face programs. Yeah, I think when you do have a cardiac event, a lot of things are usually your triggers. If you've got risk factors and you're smoking or you're diabetic, you're usually seeing other people to help you with your various conditions. And through Cardihab, although we are dedicated to helping a patient recover from a cardiac event, the information that we capture for that patient is important for any of the health service teams that they're seeing. Mm. So we've got some examples where patients have taken the app to their GP and shown them the data from the GP to the GP on their medication, on their blood pressure data, and actually had 
meaningful conversations with them about how they're going with their heart health mm. to their GP. And just being able to have that, you know, transfer of knowledge mm. from an app to, yeah. to the GP and show them uh, is much more powerful than what we often used to see, yeah. which was people writing their notes on a post-it. Yeah. So that's been really helpful. And, and of course, any other health service team member that needs to be involved, whether it's a dietitian or whether it's a psychologist, can actually start to look at that patient data as a sense of reference for how the patient's going. Within the cardiac rehab programs, we're trying to change their lifestyle, but we're going to find a way that it's really realistic for them to change. Because if we set the bar too high, they'll walk out of the room and go, no, I'm not doing it. Mm, Yeah. So we've got to find a level and a reason for them to change. So we've got to try and break down those barriers. I make it a priority to talk to anybody who's in that demographic, you know, males, late 40s to 50s, that we're not qualified to assess and diagnose and think we're okay, I'm just going to catch the next set of waves. We really should be um, putting ourselves in the hands of experts rather than displaying that kind of male stubbornness that's that's so so old-fashioned and, and a bit silly. That you, you have the kind of ability to hold yourself accountable kind of in your pocket, but in a very easy way. Not that someone's saying you must go out and walk the dog for 15 minutes, go and, and I'll be here when you come back. It's just, yeah, you can keep yourself accountable without making it so hard. Who have you decided that this is most important for? Who are you targeting? So our target is really to make sure we're available wherever patients need to be cared for. Mm. And if we're thinking about our our target from a patient population perspective, what we want to really ensure we're offering is choice. If someone really wants to go to a face-to-face rehab program and they really need it, Mm. give that space, that very rare space in that rehab program to the patient because they're more likely to get the best outcomes if that's what they truly want. Mm. But if you've got a younger person, for instance, that, that's still working, that has family commitments, um, and they don't have time to take out of their day to do two to three hours a day for six weeks, mm. give them an option to do digital, to complete it from home, and then they can fit it into their life in a way that's more likely to get the best outcomes for them. They're more likely to adhere to the program, complete the program as it's required, and actually get the best outcomes. Mm. So for us, our target is about choice. By doing so as well, you're going to liberate the health system of the bottlenecks. So if you've got people forced into a face-to-face program, then they drop out after week two, you can't just start rehab halfway through. So you start with five people in a group, Mm. three of them drop out, then there's only two in the group until the next rotation, which might be 10 weeks later. The data that CardiHab is collecting is not only helping clinicians make better decisions, but it's also informing the way the app is developed. Oh, the, the best thing about what we're seeing now is that we had a randomised control trial done many years ago uh, that set the program up and determined it could improve uptake, completion, adherence, psychological well-being, and health-related quality of life. And that's really good. But importantly now, the real patients using the product today are actually getting the same results, if not better. Really? So the results that they're entering, the data they're entering, is showing significant improvements in their exercise levels, in their most of the modifiable risk factors that we can see for patients, improvements in blood pressure, improvements in medication adherence. And all of these data points are critically important to demonstrating our program actually lives up to its potential. Mm. So we've got randomised control trials. We've got real-world evidence. 
and we've got an infinite pool of, I guess, data <laughs> that we can look at now and think about how do we optimise how we care for patients using that data that they're, they're entering as they're going along with their care plan. I'm going to throw in a question here about your accreditation process, actually, because I know if you're doing a medical device, it's mm. quite, you know, labour intensive, yeah. <laughs> but yours is a little bit different because it's a digital health solution. Yeah. So what were some of the hoops that you had to jump through in order for it to be validated? So regulation of medical devices has been around forever and a day. Yeah. And um, what we're finding now with software as a medical device, that's the category we fall into, yep. there was not necessarily the same rigor or understanding because it was new. When you want to use software as a medical device to actually make claims to improve people's outcomes, there needs to be the clinical rigor behind it. So for us, we looked at the evidence that we had. We're very fortunate we did have the randomized control trial yeah. and we had a subsequent observational study. So they're really important data points that says we can do what we say we're going to do. That's the evidence we needed. There's a lot of work that goes into the governance yes. and regulation <laughs> stuff. Yeah. And I think that's something that's often underestimated. Yes. People say, oh, I can do an app. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, you probably can. Yeah. <laughs> but not one that you want to have your patient treated with. No, or no. Or not something that you'd want to have any risk yeah. that information is hacked or, or gone into. So uh, I think there's a lot of rigour around medical device apps these days that maybe there wasn't 10 years ago. The lectures and educational material which would usually be delivered by cardiac nurses is also stored on the app, which you might remember as Paul's favourite part. Patients can explore these at their own pace, giving nurses back some much needed time. I think the thing we find is that the time saving that you get with not having to do those didactic lectures and having yep. no group sessions is about 30 to 40% time mm. saving there. Yep. Um, the program is logical and flexible and it makes sense. So a lot of clinicians look at it for the first time and go, oh, actually, that's what I would, would think would be the right thing to do. So it's great that you've got it, but it's easier to do. Mm. You know, patient responses are really quite uh, inspiring when you hear them talk about how this has been fantastic or they've had two heart attacks before and they never realised this program could make a difference and what a difference it's made. That's the food that we all live off. The, the team are all really passionate about making a difference and having an impact with what we do. And they're the stories that keep us all inspired and pumped up to do more. How have your family responded to you doing all this new tracking and and exercise and um, using CardiHab? They... Um I think I said before that the kind of carefree attitude to just returning to what I did pre the first incident in 2019, I realize it's traumatic on family members and it's quite insulting. The fact that they can see me using it because it's easy for me to use demonstrates to them that I am taking it seriously. And it's not, you know, I don't wander around holding the phone saying yeah. <laughs> here I am using the app. Yeah. It's a natural thing. It's a natural thing, part of part of everybody's use of their phone. So it, it has helped. It really has helped. It's given me the, the wake-up call I needed. Well, it sounds like you've probably kept up with your heart checks and your management of your health better the second time using this piece of technology compared to when you first suffered from a, your cardiac event. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I think the key difference is the first... Uh, cardiac rehab it's it's one appointment per week and while you're there it's invaluable you get all the information you need but life can get in the way especially if, if you're that demographic that I am where you're working still and you say oh if something's come up I'm not going to make this week's appointment so you can't go with the app it's there all the time and yes I have a scheduled call with John but but the the access to the information is 
where I want it to be and when I want it to be. It's not that I've got to move mountains to attend this this situation. So it makes it easier for, I think, someone like me not to find an excuse. Whereas in the past, for the first time, it's like, oh, look, I'm fine. I, I really don't need to attend that the fifth one. I can just go on my own way. The app's a different mode of providing that information to you. So what is next for CardiHub then? Well, I think for CardiHub, um, we've seen a really excited response from our customers when we've started to use it in cardiac rehab. They say, well, can we use it in heart failure? It's like, yeah, you should. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, if someone's had, a, have an, had an event, um, we should definitely be offering them cardiac rehab with some specific accommodations for what a heart failure patient needs. But mm. the more we looked into that, we thought there are some specific needs of a heart failure patient that go beyond six weeks. Yeah. So we're actually looking at um, ways that we can build some knowledge around heart failure treatment. We have a clinical trial currently underway where we're doing a, a, a proof of concept evaluation of how we can help heart failure people because they're more chronically required mm. treatment. So we're really excited about that. And we've got um, a five-year partnership with the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute to do a whole heap of studies on, on our platform. Uh, one that's currently in progress is on high-risk coronary artery disease patients. How do we help them over the course of 12 months? And that's a study that's currently underway. We've also got a study in long COVID so how do we help people that have had COVID and have some sort of cardiac uh, condition emerging from their COVID infection? And we're also looking at a study that's cardio-oncology. So if mm. you've had chemotherapy or some sort of treatment from cancer that's caused heart disease, well, we're looking at how we can help those patients uh, with their cardiac care through the use of our platform. So we see a lot more applicability uh, that's still related and centred around the heart health mm. uh, for cardiac beyond the cardiac rehab stage. You found your way into this amazing area of digital health. What advice would you give to other people who are looking to kind of shift into med tech and digital health solutions? I think it's the best place to be. I love it. What I have known is the, the benefits I've had from having health experience, working of commercialising medicines and products and medical devices in health mm -hmm. is critically important. Yeah. You don't necessarily appreciate how hard it is until you try to do it. Yeah. And um, if you're a technology company and you don't have that health experience, surround yourself with people who do. Mm. It, it's virtually impossible mm. to learn on the job what's required in a timely way. The health system is slow and you need to have the skill and the knowledge of how to navigate through the health system and get your product registered mm. on the TGA and then used by a customer. It's a lot of work. Don't expect a fast return on investment. <laughs> this is like buying a house and then in 10 yeah. years you make $10 million on it and you yeah. go, wow, that was a good investment. Yeah. It's a little bit like that in health. Yeah. Even in, in um, software as a medical device, which moves a bit faster, but it's still slow. Mm. Uh, so be patient with your investment. Don't expect an overnight success. Mm. They say in digital health it takes 10 years to build an overnight success story. Oh, wow. And that's probably consistent with every company I've seen that's success story. That's amazing. Yeah, so you're running so on passion right now. Energy, last, passion, yeah. <laughs> um, the very, very wonderful and generous capital we've been able to raise through people that have worked hard for their money. Yeah. And importantly, for the really amazing pioneering health services that have adopted Cardihab and provided it to their patients so that we can actually do more of this on a greater scale. As a parting comment, the staff at the hospital here, it's really good people working under a stressed system and it's, all, it's a humbling experience to go in. So my thanks go out. But the other thing I would always say for anybody who is that demographic, if in doubt, check it out. That's what I want to leave you with. For most cardiac patients, rehabilitation is out of reach. But thanks to the pioneering work of the people at Cardihab, 
this life-changing program could soon be in the palms or phones of anyone that needs it. This simple solution to the management of one of our most prolific health issues shows how innovation, digital or physical, can help shape the future of healthcare as we know it. Beyond the Medicine Cabinet is a listener production brought to you in partnership with Kuyong Group. Hosted by me, Zoe Callister-Hakewell. Producer is Kelsey Menzies. Audio by Kelly Falston. And executive producer is Todd Stevens. Todd Stevens.